Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good evening. And uh, tonight uh, we are nearing the end of our study of the Baptist Faith and Message. We have only uh, three articles left, uh, and uh, the last one being the most recent edition, that being the one on the family. But tonight we will look at Article 16 and Article 17, the one on peace and war, and then something that is a distinctive mark and characteristic of Baptist throughout her history, and that is the focus and emphasis upon religious liberty. Uh, it is interesting for me as I was studying and to prepare for this that the scripture references for each article are pretty few. Uh, they're not nearly as extensive uh, as you find in some of the earlier articles and including the one that will follow on the family. Uh, and yet the Bible does have a, I think, pretty clear word about peace and war. And it has an implied word about religious liberty. In other words, it is uh, not too difficult to get there theologically, although you don't have a specific or explicit statement in the Bible that says God grants to us religious liberty. And so I think it will be interesting tonight to see how that comes to pass. But also it is something worth remembering that uh, the United States of America has been a champion of religious liberty uh, for many years, although it wasn't the case at her inception. And, uh, in fact, uh, Christian nations in particular usually stand in stark contrast to religions uh, elsewhere in the world, in particular Islam, where if Islam is the dominant religion, almost without exception, only a couple, uh, it is also that which dictates the state, and therefore anything other than Islam uh, is at best um, barely tolerated, and in other instances, it is something that is illegal outright. And so something we have in America that is a cherished value should not and should never be taken for granted. But what does the Baptist faith and message say about peace and war? Article 16, top of uh, your first article, it is the duty of Christians to seek peace with all men on the principles of righteousness. So we don't seek peace at any cost. No, we seek peace on the principles of God-ordained and God-revealed righteousness. In accordance with the spirit and teachings of Christ, they should do all in their power to put an end to war. And, of course, the article is going to point out that the end of war will not come until the Prince of Peace returns. Thus, the true remedy for the war spirit, I like that uh, way it is said, is the gospel of our Lord. Indeed, the supreme need of the world is the acceptance of his teachings in all the affairs of men and nations and the practical application of his law of love. Thus, Christian people throughout the world should pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. And we're going to see tonight that that statement was in uh, the 1925 edition of that faith and message. It was removed for the 1963 statement, and then it was basically put back in in the 2000 statement, and I'm glad that it was. Uh, again, not a large number of scriptures, perhaps the most significant being Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Romans 12, 18 and 19. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves individually. Keep that in mind. But rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then probably the most important statement in the Bible for the responsibility of how Christians are to relate uh, to the state, to the government, Romans 13, 1 through 4. And keep in mind, Paul wrote this when Nero was the emperor of Rome. So Paul writes this at a time when there is great hostility to the Christian faith, where Christians are being arrested and persecuted. Very soon, both he and Peter will be put to death by the Roman state. And yet Paul can say this, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Paul, are you telling us that Nero is in office because God placed him there? Yes. Are you saying that uh, Barack Obama is in power today because God placed him there? Yes. Just as if as he was in control when George Bush was placed there and when Bill Clinton was placed there and George Bush, the former, was placed there and Ronald Reagan. I can keep going back if you like. The fact of the matter is uh, nothing happens apart from the sovereign providential plans and purposes of God. And God establishes these authorities. All right. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. And in fact, I often tell my students, and I would remind us tonight, bad government is better than no government. Uh, nothing is worse than anarchy. And so we should, of course, strive for, promote, and uh, seek to achieve good government. But again, we should be reminded that even a bad government is almost always better than no government. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be uh, unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For this is the government. Uh, he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For, and I believe this is a verse that does grant to the state both the right uh, to take up arms as well as the right to invoke capital punishment. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And so just as a quick reminder before we move into the article, God has ordained three institutions. He ordained first the family. He then ordained secondly government. And then he ordained thirdly the church. And all three are divinely ordained institutions given to us by God for our good. So we move into our commentary. The apex of the Beatitudes is found in these words, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called the children of God. Thus, peacemaking is described as a fundamental characteristic of believers because it is a fundamental characteristic of our God. Indeed, the Messiah is called in Isaiah 9, 6, the Prince of Peace. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace, I leave with you my peace, I give to you. Acts 10, 36, Ephesians 6, 15, the Christian gospel is called the gospel of peace. 
And again, the Holy Spirit himself produces as one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, that of peace. Colossians 3.15 and also Galatians 5 and verse 22. Now, mark this next statement. These next two were, uh, sentences are important. Peace is not merely the absence of war, which is probably how most people would initially and on the surface think of it. Actually, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, which is the word that undergirds the biblical concept, refers to a state of harmony, a state of prosperity, of well-being and uh, completeness. So it's not that the absence of war is incorrect. It's simply not sufficient. Uh, the idea of peace in the Bible is much more holistic than just that simple idea. Furthermore, there are three fundamental areas where Christians are called to make peace. Number one, with God. Number two, between Christians. And number three, corporately in the world and in society, as the Bible said a moment ago, insofar as we are able to accomplish that. Thus, the first is personal and vertical. It relates to God. And again, Romans 5.1 reminds us, since we are justified by faith, we have this vertical peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The second is horizontal, that is, reconciliation within the body of Christ. Ephesians 2 speaks specifically to the fact that God has brought Jew and Gentile together, uh, I hope we're past this, but if you roll history back a few decades, you could say God has brought together black and white in reconciliation and harmony. Quote, you were once far off, have, have been now brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. He has reconciled both groups, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. And then the third area involves corporate peacemaking in the world and society at large. And Romans 12:18 says, if it is possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. And so our first impulse as Christians should never be to take up arms. It may be a necessary uh, evil. It may be a necessary uh, alternative, but our first movement, our first impulse ought to be how can we achieve some type of reconciliation or understanding apart from any type of physical aggression. Thus, the Baptist faith and message statement is very specific, that the corporate peacemaking is to be based on principles of righteousness. Indeed, when unrighteousness Injustice and wickedness dwell, there can be no peace. The reason for this is that unrighteousness sustains what? Division, discord, pain, and strife. So whether it is personal, familial, business, school, or international relationships, there will be no biblical peace, no uh, health, no harmony, no wholeness, unless it is founded upon God's Righteousness. Baptist faith the message statement then calls upon all the faithful to, quote, do all in their power to put an end to war. Now, this will get, I think, interesting, and we're going to enter into the ethical classroom for just a few minutes. While some have suggested this must mean uh, that it must mean unilateral disarmament, Baptists, for the most part, have not understood the statement in this way. And we have usually taken the position that sometimes in order to establish a just and righteous peace, following the Augustinian tradition, a just war must 
be engaged. Very quickly, Augustine, uh, Augustine was the greatest theologian of the early church. He lived from 354 to 430. Uh, he was a prolific writer, gave us many things that we still uh, embrace today. And in particular, he probably did the best job of anyone in the history of the church of laying out for us what is called the just war theory. In other words, when is it right? To take up arms against an aggressor and to use those type of means to try to uh, bring peace and to do away with a conflict that seems to have potential for a greater harm and a greater evil that this just war could perhaps overcome. And so we're going to unwrap that for just a moment. But there are three options that are basically out there in the marketplace of ideas when it comes to uh, this idea. Most of you would be basically say, well, you know, either, uh, Danny, you're a, you're a pacifist like uh, some uh, Mennonites, Amish, others who will not take up arms at all, or you think that uh, we should go to war any time our government says so. Well, actually, there is a third position that is a better position than those two alternatives in my judgment. So, Christians have devoted serious reflection to the issue of peace and war. Uh, through the centuries, Christians have adopted three major positions regarding Christian participation in war and the proper attitude toward war. Number one, activism. This affirms that Christians are morally obligated to participate in all wars in which their government commands their services. So, for example, if tonight, for some probably surprising reason to all of us, uh, our nation were to declare war on Canada, then we would be morally obligated, regardless of the rationale, to support, take up arms, and fight against Canada. You say, um, do you fall in that category? No. Given what you know right now, would you do that? No. I would object on the basis of my conscience, and I would then be willing to suffer the consequences of my conscientious objection to what I would consider to be a immoral, inappropriate, and unjust war. I am not an activist, and I suspect neither are any of you if you think through it very carefully. Second option is passivism. This sees no place for Christians to engage in any type of warfare at all. We always seek to uh, alleviate any type of conflict through some type of dialogue, conversation, uh, negotiation, and resolution. Then the third view, which does represent my view, is selectivism. It advocates that Christians may participate in just war. So what do we mean by these things? Selectivism denies that Christians should participate in all wars. Passivism denies that war is an appropriate activity for a child of God due to the evil nature of war. Opponents of war may seek what is known as conscientious objector status that grants alternatives to military service. Some pastors even refuse to invest in companies that produce materials used in war and choose rather to invest in what is called so-called peace funds. Selectivism, though, appeals to the just war tradition originally defined by Augustine, dealing with both just causes for war and just means to engage war. Criteria for engaging in just war includes the following, a declaration of war by a legitimate authority. Could you, for example, tonight 
declare war on, oh, pick your country, Albania. No, you cannot. You are not uh, a legitimate authority. You say, who is the legitimate authority? Our government. Our ordained government would be the only legitimate authority for declaring war on another country. Secondly, the proportionate use of force. In other words, we've picked a, a war with Albania. And so tomorrow we're going to go in and nuke them with everything we've got. Would that be just? No. It would fall under the category of a disproportionate use of force. That is not what would be necessary uh, to engage them in uh, given who they are, what they're capable of doing, and, and so on. And then thirdly, and this is one where Islam often fails terribly, especially among your terroristic groups, uh, protection for non-combatants. In other words, when you engage in a war, you engage the other entity's military, you do not engage those who are non-combatants, you do not engage civilians. Uh, one of the things that has now happened in recent years because of our technology is that we're far more capable of avoiding uh, the non-combatants when we, for example, send a cruise missile in that we could basically drop on any one of your heads tonight uh, if we so chose. That's how precise we now are with what we're capable of doing there. In the past, of course, this was not always something that was uh, possible. That's why, for example, some people believe the dropping of the two atomic bombs were unjust. Uh, do you believe? I think they were just. I think they were necessity, a necessity to avoid a far greater loss of life. But the fact is, many, many civilians, many, many non-combatants uh, were killed and maimed as a result of what took place when we dropped the two atomic bombs. So those are questions that circulate when you buy into. If you're if you're a pacifist, it's just easy. I just don't do anything. If you're an activist. And uh, you buy into the uh, uh, the thinking of an Ayn Rand who believed in total war. She used the phrase total war, and she actually believed the best way to engage your enemy is to wipe them out as quickly and as cataclysmically as possible so that you just take away their spirit to fight anymore. And uh, there's some that have bought into that, though for the most part I know of no Christians who are careful thinkers who have bought into that way of thinking about uh, war. Thus, pacifism. Although a minority position today, now stay with me, this is fascinating, has enjoyed ascendancy at various times in Baptist life in relation to international events. In fact, Southern Baptists adopted the article on peace and war during a time of ascendancy of pacifism within the SBC, and I did not know that. Uh, reflecting the general mood of the nation, messengers to almost every SBC annual meeting between World War I and World War II passed resolutions calling for international disarmament. Now, those of you like me that are involved in SBC life, could you imagine us today, given the way we think, going to a Southern Baptist Convention and actually having a resolution even presented for international unilateral disarmament and then having it passed. I don't think so. I don't think that's even on the radar screen of where we're thinking today. You so you think that's a good thing? No, I actually think that we are pretty, um, how do I want to say this? Non-reflective would be the nice way. Downright ignorant would be the less nice way in thinking through these issues. In thinking through these issues. 
We don't think well about these kind of issues in our day and time, and I think we are the weaker for it. But during those years, they called for resolutions of international disarmament. In fact, in 1941's annual meeting, they passed a resolution that said, quote, We hereby express our utter abhorrence of war as an instrument of international policy and our profound conviction and belief that all international differences could and of a right ought to be composed by peaceful diplomats, diplomatic exchanges, and when these fail, then by arbitration. In other words, somehow you get the two parties to agree to what is often referred to as binding arbitration, and whatever the uh, binding arbitration decision happens to be, then that is what would be decided. And, you know, in some ways that that sounds really good uh, in theory. I I wish I could even believe it would happen in practice, but uh, history has demonstrated far too often that uh, because of our sinfulness, because of our wickedness, because of our depravity, uh, such things just simply have not worked out. The 1963 BF&M deleted a sentence from the 1925 statement calling on all Christians to, quote, pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. I have no idea why they deleted that, none at all. The BF&M 2000, though, restored the substance of the call to prayer with the statement, as I noted a moment ago, Christian people throughout the world should pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. Finally, the BFNM article on peace and war builds on the previous article, the Christian and the social order, that calls on Christians to bring the influence of Christ to bear in human society. Hence, the BFNM 2000 sets forth the method, the manner, the message, and the mandate of peace. Number one, it prioritizes the method of peace. We seek peace with all men on principles of righteousness. Secondly, it specifies the manner of peace. It is the principles of righteousness. Thirdly, it advocates a singular message of peace, the gospel, as a remedy for the war spirit. And finally, it mandates prayer for the reign of the prince of peace. Thus, the focus of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 regarding peace centers on the coming king and his kingdom. The coming of the king will institute the Edenic-like qualities described in the vision of Isaiah 2-4. Interestingly, the only Old Testament passage cited in supporting scriptures for a just war and for an ethic of peace. I think it is interesting to note that uh, many times in Islam, they will argue that uh, <clears throat> Moses is a greater prophet in the stream of thinking and the stream of religion for Islam than he is for Christianity. And if you think about it, you can see why they go there, because was Moses a man of war? Yes. And in fact, they will say that uh, Muhammad is a better second Moses than is the Lord Jesus. Now, I would vehemently and uh, vociferously disagree with that. But the fact of the matter is, we do need to understand that in the Old Testament, uh, war was part and partial of that uh, day and age, of that culture, even of God's people. Based upon Romans 13, though the church is not to be involved in waging war except against the powers of Satan, hell, death, and the grave, uh, it is still legitimate, I believe, for Christians uh, as good citizens of their particular government to avail themselves and make themselves available in the instances of a just war. Do I think that we were right in what we did in World War I? Yes. World War II? Yes. Korea? Yes. Vietnam? 
Yes, but I don't think we engaged it in the right way. And therefore, uh, it did not succeed in what it was intended. I think we were right in going. I don't think we were right in the way we sought to uh, resolve it. Uh, do I think we were right in responding as we have to 9-11? Yes. Uh, and so I do think there are places and times where it is not what is ideal. It is simply what is necessary in a fallen world to prevent a greater evil. I mean, let's just stop for a moment and I'll go on. Imagine America did not get involved in World War II. Imagine that Hitler, uh, Japan, Italy, the Axis uh, nations succeeded. Imagine what the world would be like today. As bad as it is, I strongly suspect it would have been much, much, much worse. And so I do believe that Augustine, Augustine is right in his just war theology. All right. Let's move into Article 17, religious liberty. It states it's a long statement, but a good statement. And again, this is a hallmark of Baptists. And so it's not surprising that there is a lengthy statement here, though, a, uh, again, a small number of scriptures. God alone is Lord of the conscience and he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to his word or not contained in it. Church and state should be separate. You ought to mark that. The state owes to every church protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. And tragically, we're seeing this uh, taken away above us in Canada. It would not surprise me if we begin to see this erode in our country as well in certain moral areas where perhaps ministers and churches will be um, muzzled, if possible, by the state. And we will have to oppose that. And ministers will have to be willing, as Baptists did in their past, to go to jail if necessary to maintain our freedom to preach the gospel and to proclaim the truth of God's word, even if it's not popular. Thus, in providing for such freedoms, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. Uh, you say, Danny, would you like to have a Baptist state government? No. Ten thousand times no. Which Baptist is going to be in charge of it? If it's me, okay. If it's you, no. I don't, I don't trust you. I'm sorry. I don't want you ruling and reigning in that kind of a way. And so, no, I don't want a, a Baptist state. I want a Catholic state, an Episcopal state. No. Uh, I want the state to stay out of the business of religion. Civil government then being ordained of God. It is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereto in all things, not contrary to the revealed will of God. The church then should not resort to the civil power to carry on its work. If our church has a disagreement, do we need to appeal to uh, the city, the county, the state to come in and resolve our difficulties? No. They need to keep their snout out of our business. The local church is more than capable of taking care of our own affairs under the lordship of Christ, standing upon the authority of the word of God. Thus, the gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends. The state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind, even if you don't like it. Um, Fred Phelps, that idiot, that lost moron out there in Kansas who goes to the funerals of homosexuals and holds up signs that says God hates fags and fags should die and go to hell and God hates queers and all that junk that he does. 
I'm sure he's unregenerate. I'm sure he is the one who's going to hell. But should he have the right to speak in a public forum? Yes, he should. I despise the Klan, but should the Klan, even though it's only in pockets around here, there, and yonder, have the right to speak in terms of their... Yes, they should. Just like back in the days of the Black Panthers and the radical Islamic movements uh, under people uh, like Elijah Muhammad, should they have... Yes, they should. I may not like it, but they have should not under any means be penalized for their opinions. Furthermore, the state has no right to impose taxes for the support of any form of religion. In fact, I've underlined the next statement because it summarizes really the whole article. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. And this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by the civil power. Now, how would we biblically and theologically argue for our right to what we call religious liberty? Well, I think Genesis 1:27 gives us an implied right. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Is our moral and spiritual freedom a reflection and a ontological essential component of what it means to bear the image of God? I would argue yes. I would argue yes, that we bear God's image in and of itself would entail freedom in terms of worship. Acts 4, 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. But we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And then perhaps the crucial verse for all this for me, Acts 5, 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The implication is, should we obey men? Yes, we should obey the governing authorities. However, as I've often said when I teach uh, on this issue to teenagers and uh, young adults that are in college, if I have to make a decision between honoring the Lord Jesus Christ or honoring the United States of America, uh, the United States of America like loses every single time. And again, I always say that, and I never get amens from anybody because it feels wrong in your gut. Because we're so proud to be Americans, and I am proud to be an American. But when it comes to who my Lord and Savior and Master and King is, it's not the president, it's not the governor, it's not the mayor, it's no uh, governmental official at all. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, my allegiance is to my spiritual master, not to my national leaders. And again, uh, I think sometimes, especially us in the South, in Southern Baptist life, blur too quickly and too easily the lines between the spiritual and the political. And um, gosh, I have to be careful here. I don't know what our church does around the 4th of July, so I'm just going to say nothing, but I wouldn't have 4th of July services, and I'm moving on. Religious liberty sprung fully formed in the earliest Baptist writings. Their doctrine of the church assumed that the Spirit and He alone used the power of biblical truth to produce the new birth. Thus, the composition of the church consists only of those born again under his influence. You say, well, that's just self-evident. No, it's not. If you are born in Spain, you are born into the Catholic Church. 
Historically, if you were born in Germany, you were born into the Lutheran Church. In fact, prior to the Reformation in all the major uh, countries of uh, Western Europe, whatever uh, country you happen to be born into, you were born into the Roman Catholic Church. And to be a good Catholic meant to be a good member of the state. That's why when the Anabaptists came along around 1527 and uh, rediscovered the uh, doctrine of believers' baptism, they were tried by the state for treason because they were now taking a stand not against just the church. It was viewed as a stand against the state. And so this is something that with all of our faults and phobials and shortcomings, we can be proud of as Baptists. Furthermore, the composition of the church consists only of those born again under his influence, that is the spirits, and believers only, therefore, should be baptized. The spirit's sword, not the magistrate's sword, makes Christians. I like that. A church constituted by those whose consciences have been either forced or bribed by carnal power is not a New Testament church, and it will not result in authentic Christianity. Indeed, when you baptize babies, you fill your churches with baptized unbelievers, baptized unregenerates. And to quote John MacArthur as he was speaking to a group of Presbyterians a few years ago, uh, brothers, I challenge you to complete the Reformation. And completing the Reformation means more than just preaching salvation alone, uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It also means the recovery of a believer's church, a regenerate church, and therefore the recovery of believer's baptism and the advocacy of religious liberty for all. Next paragraph, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message continues then. This historical witness when it states as its first sentence, God alone is the Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to his word or not contained in it. Thus, the article strongly implies that creeds enforced by a civil power by the government would be unwarranted and even outside the bounds of a legitimate government. Indeed, the BFNM says the state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. You say, why would they even say that? Because Baptists were incarcerated and Baptists were fined in the early history of America because they were operating outside the confines and restrictions of state churches. You go back and look at the founding of the 13 original colonies and almost all of them, I think uh, Rhode Island was the exception, David, is that correct? Uh, they were all founded and had a state church, some Catholic, some uh, Anglican Episcopal, uh, some uh, congregational, but they had state churches. And even the Puritans, whom I love and appreciate dearly, initially did not come here. They, it's often said they came here for uh, religious liberty. Yeah, to worship like a Puritan. As long as you worship like a Puritan, you had religious liberty. You worship contrary to being a Puritan, and you would be fined, whipped, uh, like Obadiah Holmes, a good Baptist, uh, or you would be thrown in jail. And so, again, this is something that we can be very proud of that has been part and partial of Baptists since their very, very beginning. Next paragraph, then. The preface of the 2000 BFNM includes wording on this issue that is more carefully construed and constructed than that of the 1963 statement, quote, Baptists cherish and defend religious liberty 
and it denies the right of any secular or religious authority to impose a confession of faith upon a church or a body of believers. Do we have a confession of faith here? Yes. Was it imposed upon us? No. We crafted it. We voted for it. We approved it ourselves as a body of believers. It did not come from um, Cary, nor did it come from Nashville. It is something that came up from within this local body of believers. But just as strongly, however, the confession encourages and approves the development of doctrinal statements derived from the Word of God and entered into voluntarily by churches for the sake of gospel witness. Thus, quote, the gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends and including among these the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by the civil power. So Southern Baptists operate under what? The Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Did it come from Washington? No. It came from a group of Baptists who worked on it, who conceived it, who brought it before a body of believers who approved it. Now, here we are as the Wake Crossroads Baptist Church. Are we bound to or by the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 because it was passed in Orlando that year? No. Now, we can choose. And Randy, do we have that as our confession here? We have chosen the past and voted to indeed embrace it as our confession. But it was not forced upon us. It was not something given from above. Again, it was something that rose up from within. You say, well, could we have, if we had wanted to, could we have adjusted it? Yes. Could we have deleted some of the articles? Yes. Could we have, yes. Because we are a local, autonomous body of believers who have religious freedom to move forward in the pursuit of spiritual matters as we see best, of course, praying this done under the Lordship of Christ and on the authority of the Bible. I have a star by the next statement in my notes. However, no citizen is to be more loyal to the government or more zealous for the rights of others than a historically informed, gospel-believing Baptist. A well-ordered government should function, quote, so that every church, and for that matter, every religion, enjoys protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. You say, do you believe then, Danny, that Mormons should have religious liberty? Yes. Jehovah's Witnesses? Yes. Muslims? Yes. Buddhists? Yes. Hindus? Yes. All of them? Yes. 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 I hope I would even be willing to put my life on the line for them to enjoy that religious liberty. You say, why? Because if they take it away from one of them, they can take it away from who? Us. So what's good for one has to be good for all. This commitment then to freedom arises not from doubts concerning the clarity of divine revelation or a realistic view of truth, but rather from the happy conviction that the gospel and it only is the power of God unto salvation. In other words, we want all religious ideas to be out there in the marketplace because we believe in the end the truth of the gospel will crush all the others. In his book, More Than Just a Name, Preserving Our Baptist Identity, Baptist theologian and friend of mine, Stan Norman, defines religious freedom as, quote, the right of each person to be free and uncoerced in his or her pursuit or lack of pursuit of a personal relationship with God. Baptist affirmed that religious liberty is an inalienable right granted by God to all people. J.B. Jeter, the legendary 19th century Baptist leader, 
described Baptist support for religious liberty for all people. Quote, they Baptists have not only claimed it, religious liberty for themselves, but they have accorded it to others as well, Jews and pagans as well as Christians. Baptists then alone of all denominations consistently advocated religious freedom for all people. European civilization bequeathed to the world what we call Christendom, the unity of state, culture, and Christian tradition. Other than the Anabaptists, who are in, at least spiritually our uh, genetic forefathers, other than the Anabaptists, the Protestant reformers, think Martin Luther, think John Calvin, think Ehrlich Zwingli, think John Knox, the Protestant reformers were magisterial reformers, which means they elevated the role of government over the church, believing that the magistrate, the government, received from God the power to purify the church. Thus, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, and the Anglicans all used the power of the government to purify or corrupt the church, depending on which side of government enforcement you found yourself. So, for example, in his infamous uh, act there in Geneva, uh, John Calvin did indeed work in partnership with the government of Geneva to have the heretic Michael Servetus burned at the stake. Did the church burn him? No. The church, in partnership with the state, participated in the execution of a heretic, Michael Servetus. You say he should not have been executed? He should not have been executed. He should not have been arrested? He should not have been arrested. He should be free to propagate his false teaching? Yes, and we should be free to counter his false teaching with the truth of the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, not the sword of the magistrate. What then are the emphases of the BFNM statement regarding religious freedom? Five are highlighted as we move to close our study tonight first. The BFNM affirms the lordship of God, that it provides the supreme foundation of religious liberty. Second, it proclaims the principle of separation of church and state. Now, you, if you're listening carefully, I have not said separation of God and state. I've said separation of church and state. The fact of the matter is, God is recognized uh, in the uh, Constitution. God is recognized. We're endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. And so, do I believe in separation of church and state? Yes, I do. Separation of God and state? No, I do not. And I believe we should have the right, and indeed we have the obligation, to try to bring to bear the influence of godly principles and righteousness upon the political and governmental processes that a good, righteous world might be promoted, yet recognizing that true righteousness will never be found in the government. It is always found in the imputed righteousness that we receive in a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to make sure those things stay distinct. Third, the BFNM sets forth the mutual, albeit distinct, duties of government and religious faith which each has to each other. God ordained the principles of government, and he has charged the government with specific duties, and they need to do those duties, but not those that pertain to the life of the body of Christ, the community of faith. Fourth, the BFNM delineates limitations for government and religion. According to the BFNM 2000, government has at least three limitations. First, it is not to grant favored status to any ecclesiological group or denomination. Second, it must not impose penalties for religious opinions. Third, 
Uh, the state must not impose taxes to support any religion. In addition to these, there must be no financial entanglements with government funding. Let me work backwards. Should our church, when we built our beautiful building behind me, have sought funding from the government to build that building? No. We do not need their funding. We don't want their funding. We should not ask for their funding. Let me work backwards. Should um, Bill, Randy, Danny, Paul, David, Mike, should any of us be arrested if we were standing in the pulpit sometime and we were to proclaim that we believe abortion is murder, that it is the taking of innocent life? No, we should not be arrested for that. Should we be arrested, as it is the case in Canada today, for saying that homosexuality Lesbianism, bisexuality, and transgender activity is sinful and wrong. No, we should not be arrested for that. We should be allowed to propagate our religious opinions without any fear of coercion, any fear of imprisonment, or even any fear of a fine. Finally, government grants its citizens the right to propagate the faith. The First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantees the freedom of assembly, including religious assemblies, and freedom of speech, including religious speech. Although the right to freedom of assembly has been seriously challenged and even, I think, violated in certain sections of America today. For example, in some cases where folks have tried to uh, create and meet as a house church, even in America it has been deemed to be illegal, and uh, they have been uh, commanded uh, in order to stop or face prosecution. I think that's wrong. I think that they should be able to meet wherever they want to meet, as long as it does not bring harm to someone, and to speak in whatever manner they wish to speak, as long as, again, it does not bring harm to someone. Religion also has limitations in the realm of government involvement. Religion should not use civil power for its spiritual mission. Jesus, for example, rebuked James and John for a desire to impose the most severe form of penalty to the residents of a city that did not welcome Jesus. They called down, Lord, bring destruction from uh, heaven and do it in the form of fire. Yet the Christian faith opposes any form of external coercion. Rather, we advocate the principles of religious persuasion rather than force. That is, we advocate the use of spiritual means alone for the pursuit of the spiritual gospel-centered ends. It's a tough issue to navigate in our country today, one that requires great wisdom, great discernment, and a radical devotion to the guidelines and principles that we find in the Word of God. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the fact that you have placed all of us in this room right now uh, in a country where there is religious liberty and freedom. Uh, and we thank you for that. Uh, we didn't gather here tonight fearful that we might be arrested. Uh, we did not gather here tonight fearful that the uh, police might show up and lock the doors and fine us for having gathered here as a body of believers who believe the gospel and who will continue to propagate the truths of God's Word. We, we didn't worry about that. That may change. And if it does, may we be like Peter and John. We must obey God rather than men. And then, Lord, we thank you that we do live in a country right now where there is, for the most part, stability and peace. And, Lord, when those occasions arise where war seems to be uh, an unavoidable necessity... Help us to think carefully and clearly. 
Help us to make sure, Lord, that it is a uh, just cause and that we use just means for just ends. Recognizing that praise your son's name. He's coming again as the Prince of Peace. And one day, all war, all hostility, it will cease and cease forever. We look for that day. We long for that day. And we do indeed know that that day is coming when he comes again. So bless our study tonight, Lord. Uh, May we learn from it. And may we put into practice that we would bring great honor and glory to your name. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.